Winter was here, but we're just getting started here on our Game of Thrones rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are the two guys who are sons of guys uh, that you don't know. I'm Rod Sister, and here's Josh Wiggler. How are you? I'm doing very well. I love that. Bron of You Wouldn't Know Him. Uh, yeah. What a great name for that guy. It's a, kind of a mouthful of a last name. You wouldn't know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, and he that's a that's a bad last name too, because like you're really far down in the alphabet, so like you're always going to be called last for everything. Like the Ys, they're not a lot of Y last names. You wouldn't know him. It's <laughs> really far down there. Yeah, I would have been in the same homeroom as Bron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would have. Yeah, I would have. It would have been great. Yeah. All right, Josh Wiggler, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Uh, I'm doing very well. I am loving this Game of Thrones rewatch so much. I can't even tell you. I mean, I guess I can tell you. I'm about to tell you how much I loved this episode in particular. You know, I've been doing my episode rankings of the Game of Thrones episodes in the spoiler section of these podcasts, uh, just because there's more to talk about at that point in time. But uh, I'll just I'll just spoil it here. This is my favorite episode of the season so far the pointy end. what a great episode what a great episode to go back and revisit um so much is being set up but there's just so much action that's happening as well the uh the horrible attack of the of the lannisters on the starks and everything really actively moving towards war uh this is the first episode written by george rr R. martin who is the mm-hmm. author of his own fate as well as a song of ice and fire the novel series on which game of thrones is based I think it really shows just the immediate grasp on these characters. Um, And then for a whole host of reasons that we can get into in the spoiler section as to why I love this episode so far uh, so much. Uh, But yeah, so far through eight episodes of season one, by far and away my favorite. Okay, so a lot of stuff to get to. If you missed any of our Game of Thrones uh, rewatch episodes, you can subscribe to get one every Tuesday. Postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes for the uh, amazing series of going back and watching Game of Thrones in partnership with The Hollywood Reporter. So that's what's going on here in this episode. I gotta say, I don't love the name, Josh. The pointy uh, end. You might say the best episode. I think it might be one of the worst names. So that, Why? We I, love the pointy end. Stick them with the pointy end. Stick them with the pointy end, sure. But it, it doesn't get said in this episode. It's something that gets said uh, way back in like the second episode. So I don't really understand why the pointy end ends up sure. being the name of this episode. Yeah, I can help you with that, I think. Um, for one, you know, it is a line that is now already established in the lexicon of Game of Thrones, which is kind of remarkable sure. that eight episodes deep into this very sprawling, you know, this hugely sprawling uh, saga, we already like can hear those words and remember like, oh, yeah, that's what Jon Snow told Arya Stark about how to use a sword. So it's already self-referential eight episodes deep in a way that I think is very cool. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is obviously uh, major news. Arya Stark is going to kill somebody in this episode. She stabs this poor boy uh, who is really, you know, kind of asking boy. for it. Stable yeah. boy. Uh, maybe not, you know, asking to be killed, but that that's, you know, an argument for another time. But Arya is going to use that lesson that she was 
taught very early on and stick them with the pointy end. So it's literally happening in the episode. But I think it also refers to the fact that that's where we're standing right now. We're standing on the pointy end of war right now, Rob, as all of these tensions have finally boiled over. You know, the first seven episodes or so are really built on the back of rising this animosity between House Stark and House Lannister, the Northerners versus the Southerners, the honorable and the courageous versus the opportunistic and manipulative and rich. Uh, And it finally spills out into full-blown bloodshed. Like, we'd already seen glimmers of this earlier in the series when uh, Ned's people are killed by Jamie Lannister in the streets of King's Landing, but that was nothing compared to what happens in the opening act of this episode, where we even learn from Varys that everybody who was serving House Stark at, uh, you know, in King's Landing, they've been killed. They're all dead. So, total bloodshed, total declaration of war. We're seeing Rob Stark march men to war, rallying the North, calling his banners. They are on the active move. Tyrion Lannister, Tywin Lannister, they're talking about how they're gearing up for battle. Jamie is having victories left and right, according to Tywin. So we're at the pointy end of war now. Like it's, you know, it's now time to to really take the swords out and stick them where they belong if they're trying to survive. So I actually think it's a playful title that does call back on a line that already exists pretty famously at this point in Game of Thrones. And it serves as a great metaphor for where we are on the show. So I love it. I'm fine with the title. Okay, so we got a lot of stuff going on as really this uh, insurrection of just like taking out all forces Stark that are in the capital is going on. And we open up the episode with we end up seeing uh, we see Sansa uh, being uh, sent to her room. Uh, we see the Lannister men really like sieging uh, the city and anything that has to do with the uh, old guard. And then we also end up seeing a water dancing lesson between Arya and Ciro Pharrell interrupted. Interrupted indeed. Uh, boy, interrupted. Uh, we see Arya and then Sirio. They are having this one last lesson, and Sirio gives Arya some really um, good advice. I feel like when they're fighting, and Sirio gets the upper hand, even though he said he was going right, he goes left. He lied. Sirio says, "My tongue lied, but my eyes told the truth. Watching is not seeing. Uh, true seeing is the heart of swordplay, and it feels like very valuable advice for Arya to hear." right before everything goes to seven hells in a handbasket and we see the king's guard uh they come in they're tearing up everybody in house stark they make their way to aria and sirio and sirio makes this stand for aria and kicks the crap out of the king's guard with nothing more than his wooden sword uh and then of course the sword breaks and sirio tells aria what do we say to the god of death not today but maybe today because aria runs away and it can't be good for Sirio Pharrell. We don't get any further elaboration really in the episode other than we know that everybody that worked for the Starks is dead. So it sounds like it's probably the end for Sirio Pharrell here, right? It sounds like it. Sure, sure. Uh, I, well, let's revisit this uh, when we end up in a more uh, spoiler able territory. Interesting. Okay, let's do it. 
Okay. All right. Uh, we also have a lot of other stuff going on in King's Landing having to do with Sansa. And we see Sansa brought before the small council. And there is a lot of pushing and pressuring Sansa to write this letter to send to the Starks to sort of out Ned Stark as a traitor. Right. And it's it's really intense. Um, I think up to this point in Game of Thrones, you're not necessarily incentivized to like really like Sansa Stark, you know, for her to be like one of your favorite characters by any stretch of the imagination. If you're looking at the two Stark sisters, I think that what you I don't think it's controversial to say that the vast majority of Game of Thrones viewers at this point in time, I think, are Arya fans over Sansa. Uh, but that being said, like when you when you think about what Sansa is going through in this moment, She's the only Stark that is still free in King's Landing. All of these people that she has come down here with are either dead or missing if it's Arya or captured if it's Ned. Uh, and here she is standing or sitting rather before the gathered forces of the small council, Cersei included, telling her their version of the narrative of what went down with Ned Stark and basically play ball or it's not going to be very good for you. Like your heart has to go out to this kid. She's really being forced into a situation that she probably would not have chosen otherwise. But she's, you know, really up against some very manipulative psychological bullies in this moment. And it's kind of hard to break away from what it is they're trying to push upon her. So, yeah, of course, she's going to write a letter to to the north and tell them what the Lannister terms of surrender basically are and summon Rob to the south. But the people who know Sansa Stark and just as importantly, the people who know who Cersei Lannister are, they know know what the truth is behind that letter we end up seeing uh, more of the outcome of that at the end of the episode where we have this big scene in the throne room where we end up with a uh barris and selmy ending up uh being forced out of the king's guard he's not happy about that everybody's very mean to barris and selmy also the more it, bullying it, you know be respectful be respectful of this guy he is one of the most courageous and honorable and highly capable people in all of king's landing uh in all of the in all of the seven kingdoms really and probably beyond this guy this is barrist in the bold rob he's a good swordsman he's the best More like barrist in the old am i right uh, stop it stop it stop it you're just For gonna Joffrey pile on me. you're just gonna yeah. pile on yeah on, stop <laughs> be cool be cool here yeah, yeah he like he, he you know drops the mic and is like yep see ya I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to take your your hall to die in. I'm going to continue to be a knight and I shall die a knight. And he really insults everybody in the room. And it's it's kind of awesome. You know, in a moment where like this really horrible regime is starting to take over and this dude is just like who ha- who represents so much in, in the Seven Kingdoms and is so respected by just about everybody. Like that's even what Ned says in the previous episode. Like no one can question Sir Barristan's honor and integrity. Mm-hmm. And for this guy to be telling off the new king. It's a pretty powerful gesture. But that's why they ultimately get rid of him. It's not because he's too old, that that's really just a cover story that they know that he is a man of integrity and he's not going to play well with this regime. Yeah, what they're planning, integrity is not high on the list. So I think that they know that Barristan is not going to be the right guy for the gig. 
Yeah. And so then we also had Sansa brought before the court and we have Sansa uh, really having to declare that her father is a traitor, but she wants mercy. She doesn't know why he did the things, but she's not going to deny that he is a traitor. But somebody must have been telling him lies. She's hoping that Joffrey's mercy will prevail over his wrath is what you're trying to say. Yes, yes, that that is exactly what she's hoping. And so Joffrey says, "Okay, well, if your father admits to what he did, then maybe he'll get mercy. Like maybe, maybe, you know, that's, you know, it's up for debate, but it's it's the first step. At least he's got to do that and say it's like, yeah, he'll do it. It's fine. That's no problem. He'll totally he'll totally confess. It is funny in these court scenes that really uh, the entire court is like hanging on anybody to like drop a zinger. Like if Littlefinger or Varys, like uh, if they've got any sort of barb, uh, everybody goes nuts. Justice for barb. Yeah. It's a hot room. It's a yeah. hot room. And yeah, I mean, like Littlefinger is really the guy who like is squirting lemon juice in Barristan's wounds where he's like a naked knight, apparently. Ah! And everyone's like, oh, my God, Littlefinger. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god wait till i get started you know like he's really just warming up the room he's uh he's got another career in him if this whole uh king's landing thing doesn't work out as a stand-up i think is anyone here from outside of king's landing <laughs> <laughs> i'm from dorn i'm sorry to hear that <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I, I would love to hear his set on just ruthlessly mocking the iron islanders i feel like would be pretty fun yeah all right uh meanwhile a lot of other stuff uh going on in this episode a lot of stuff going on with uh Tyrion and Braun, who are uh one just you know continuing to uh get their bond going and we have sort of like a formal declaration of Tyrion saying to Braun, like stick with me if anybody tries to throw throw me under the bus like i like living i'll pay you more than they will just come to me and so they end up being surrounded by the hill people and uh it looks a little dire for Tyrion. but once again we see him able to talk his way out of that situation yeah shaga son of dolph of the stone crows zoiks uh yeah he's here and he is ready to move in on Tyrion and Bronn. and then Tyrion tells a joke that i shall not repeat here uh mm-hmm. it's vulgar but it's pretty funny it's a it's a funny moment between these characters and shaga is, which one about how would you like to die yeah how would you like to die is a good one and shaga gets a big laugh out of it Tyrion knows how to read the room he would be great like la- like last westeros comedian standing i think would be would be a good show uh but it's enough to get shaga to be like oh this guy's funny he can he can live he'll dance for the children let's just kill the the sellsword and Tyrion's like no don't kill the sellsword i like the sellsword if you guys just team up with us and you follow me to where i'm going and you protect us along the way you could be super super rich we can give you all the weapons that you could possibly want and they seem to be up on that and they are uh they are game enough to take Tyrion and Bronn to tywin lannister's encampment where Tyrion is going to get the update on everything that's going on back in king's landing uh that's one of my favorite parts of this episode too is just like scene after scene after scene of people finding out the news of what just happened in king's landing and the different reactions actions that everybody has based on what their loyalties are or just like their intelligence level or their emotional connection to what's happened i think is a is a really really great factor of game of thrones at large when like information gets widely disseminated but specifically in this episode i think it's really good 
Yeah. And so Tyrion had made a promise to uh, the hill tribes that they were going to get a bunch of weaponry and shields. And Tywin ends up saying that you will get that stuff if you guys help me in battle. And what they want is they want Tyrion uh, fighting with them. They want to basically hold Tyrion as a member of their guard. Now, it's interesting that Tywin was willing to go to war to get uh, Tyrion back in uh back from the captors but then he is very willing to give Tyrion to the hill people. I think it's if it's not like completely clear at this point I think it's starting to become clear that Tywin Lannister doesn't have a ton of love for Tyrion for whatever reason he's clearly his least favorite child uh and he was talking to Jamie about this in his first appearance about how like we we can't let the realm think that we're so weak that one of us gets captured and we do nothing about it um but with that being said at this point Tyrion is no longer in captivity Tyrion is for Firmly entrenched with the Lannisters once again, now that the Hill people and uh, Bronn have escorted him back to his father's safe custody. And I think at this point, like if Tyrion Lannister were to go into battle and get killed, oh, that's just a valiant, heroic death for for one of our own, (laughs) perhaps even like a rallying point. Right. But if the Hill people end up holding Tyrion captive, isn't that a worse look? Like it's one thing if like a noble house from the north ends up taking Tyrion what if the hill people took Tyrion? I think if you were just to like die in combat and like who's really going to know that story? You know, I don't think that that's going to necessarily be as wide of a story as mm-hmm. Tyrion getting captured by Catelyn Stark and brought to the Vale for justice. I think that there's a way to like sweep the Tyrion getting killed by the by the mountain clans people uh, and just like kind of sweep that under the rug and be like, oh, what a what a glorious death for my son Tyrion. Now let's get back to work. Like yeah. I feel like that's definitely in the cards here. Okay. Uh, like it kind of goes back to the whole thing that Sirio is talking to Arya about earlier in the episode of like you went left when you said you went right and he's like yeah you know uh, my tongue lied but my eyes told the truth it's like you know the story would be a fabrication but you would know what the truth is you would know what Tywin really thinks about all of this okay meanwhile in the north uh we end up getting word to rob stark about what's going on with ned and uh rob ends up making the decision to call the banners uh maester lewin is a little skeptical what all of them yes all of them uh theon thinks it's a good idea theon seems oh, theon's up. loving it theon's loving it is this a surprise like based on everything that we have learned about theon Greyjoy so far this guy who is like really arrogant and a little bit you know uh, trigger happy potentially in a few different ways i feel like this is a guy who's going to be psyched about marching off to war this is a guy who has been um all on his high horse about give me the respect i deserve i'm a lord i'm a lord uh even though he is you know technically a hostage and a prisoner in the north but he has become very close with the Starks and especially Rob so I think that he feels like this is a shot for glory this is a perfect thing for us to be doing right now and so we see Rob with all of the Stark bannermen and he is basically uh, you know making his pitch but you know people don't really respect Rob Stark yet we see a great John Humber saying no I'll be the one leading the vanguard and then uh, we end up seeing that uh, that he is uh, now little fingers uh, might be a, a name for him as well <laughs> three fingers yeah uh, yeah the great John gets attacked by 
like Grey Wind robs Dire Wolf because he draws steel in front of Rob, which apparently is a big no-no. Uh, and you think that the Grey John, Great John's going to be really, really pissed off about this, but instead he, he comes. It. Yeah, he loves it. Your meat is bloody tough. Uh, such a good line. The Great John, instantly one of the great characters of Game of Thrones in his first appearance. I mean, it's so bizarre that he gets his fingers bit off and it's like the funniest thing ever. You know, he's a northerner. Northerners are tough. They're bloody tough <laughs> as well. So. You know, he loves uh, we, it. We see Rob end up saying goodbye to Bran. He's got to leave him a uh, touching scene. And then poor Rickon, who uh, really nobody is supervising Rickon at all. That uh, he comes in and uh, basically like Bran is in charge of Rickon. Bran's in charge of watching uh, Rickon. Can you just clarify for me who is Rickon? Who is this guy? Yeah. Who is who is this strange? It's like, wait, there's child? another Stark kid. <laughs> who is this little kid that just walks into Bran's room? Who's been like apparently lurking in the shadows this entire time? Yeah, yeah. Bran's younger brother. For anyone who's forgotten that this is uh, this is a character that we've uh, had on the show up to this point. Um, yeah, it's easy to forget. Like he's had nothing to do. Yeah, Bran says, "Don't worry, everybody's gonna be home soon." And uh, Rickon's like, "No, they won't." Yeah, he's like, "No, they won't." Like, wow, yeah. you're very, very upset. You need to go down for you need to go down for the night at this point. <laughs> yeah. Get him some milk. Someone. Of the poppy. Yeah. Someone bring Rick on the milk of the poppies yeah. ready for bed. Oh, I'm not tired. <laughs> Look, yeah. he's still not like the brattiest young kid uh, on no. Game of Thrones by a long shot. Yeah, no. There's some there's some other contenders for that title. OK. Um, in other news, Naked Hodor. Naked Hodor. Indeed. Giant's blood, huh? Mm. Yeah, yeah, so they say. So they say. All right. Uh, nice job there by uh, DJ Hodor. Yeah, a naked, a naked knight and a naked giant in the same episode. Who knew? Also, uh, then we will end up seeing Rob Stark end up getting that letter from Sansa Stark while he is uh, on the road. And so he ends up uh, being very surprised about this note that comes uh, written by Sansa. Yeah, he's a little he's a little bit disturbed by that. Rob and Catelyn Stark, his mother, are also going to reunite while they're on the road. And she's going to be one of the people who's like, that's Cersei Lannister's words. It's my daughter's handwriting, but it's Cersei's words. Um, and they're both very concerned about the fact that there's no word of Arya at all. Uh, we know that Arya has escaped for the time being, at least. Um, but it seems like nobody in King's Landing has any in indication uh, of what has happened to Arya, which is not great for the Lannisters' position of power. I mean, it's not a game changer. It's not like a game ender, rather. Uh, they still have Sansa. That's a huge bargaining chip that they have on their side. But they've got no idea where Arya is. And I think that, you know, dead or alive, they would at least like some resolution on that point okay then up at the wall we end up having an encounter with a reanimated corpse josh Oh, yeah, this is cool. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones is, I think, a show that ended up being so popular and landing with such an impact because it took the fantasy genre, took, you know, like the stories that you've seen in the movies through the Lord of the Rings and all of that good stuff and kind of gave it more of a realistic coat of paint. Um, you're hearing about dragons. You're not seeing dragons. The first scene of the whole series involves, you know, this frozen nemesis in the north and you don't really 
really understand the full scope of what's going on there. And we've been hearing the, the you know, whispers of the winds of winter, Rob, uh, is all that we're hearing about the winds of winter, in fact. Uh, but you don't really spend a lot of time focused on that supernatural aspect of Game of Thrones through eight episodes. And suddenly Jon Snow is doing battle with a zombie with, you know, a former member of the Night's Watch who is being resurrected and coming after them. So that's hardcore. That's pretty awesome. Uh, and it definitely gives you a little bit of a sense of or a reminder, at least, of what we saw in the beginning of this show. And like, yeah, uh, there might be some wisdom to what Osha is telling to Bran earlier in this episode of like, your brother shouldn't be marching south. He should be marching north. That's where the true threat lies. I think that's uh, based on what you see uh, of John's battle against one of these zombified members of the Night's Watch. Uh, that is probably probably decent advice, probably mm-hmm. something that's worth paying attention to. And then the other storyline that goes on in the East in this episode is uh, we see the Dothraki being Dothraki. And again, Daenerys, as we saw in the previous episode, that she was not happy by the rousing speech that Khal Drogo gave, that she wants to call to an end to the raping and the pillaging. Yeah, she's done with that. Uh, yeah, she gets to see what it looks like when the Dothraki sack a village firsthand, and it's not pretty. Uh, you know, you don't want to be lamb anything. You know, you don't want to be related to any kind of lamb. Uh, you don't want to be in any sort of position of inferiority against any sort of horse lord. Uh, but Danny steps in and stops several members of the Dothraki clan from, uh, from really going too far, uh, and she rounds up a bunch of of the of the women who are being treated so so despicably and goes to call drogo and says these are mine now they they belong to me if the if your men want to mount them they can marry them first and drogo is really tickled by uh danny's ferocity uh and i think that he's he's you know game to kind of change as Danny is changing I think there seems to be that sense of drogo willing to take her more he's seriously a progressive a he's, progressive he, Dothraki. He's like a reluctantly progressive Dothraki. I think he's like a slow. He's slowly becoming woke. It's His a, position it's, is evolving. It feels. It feels like it's a work in slow progress, but it's in progress, perhaps. Yes. Uh, but one of Drogo's fellow warlords is. Uh, he's not. He's not having it. This is uh, Mago, I believe, is the name of this guy, and it doesn't really matter because he's dead in like five seconds. Yeah, I thought that Mago went too far when he said that Daenerys was the Yoko. Ono of the Dothraki. I felt like <laughs> that, that, was, that, was yeah, that was not offensive. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was cool that uh, that like John and Yoko, like news of them had uh, already hit Essos at this point. Uh, Beetle's you know, pretty I, big. Pretty I, guess, I, yeah. I guess so. I, just didn't, I didn't know that even the Dothraki were fans, but it makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, Carl Drogo says, oh, I guess that the blood of the stallion that mounts the world is running through your body, Daenerys. So uh, I guess you must be right about that. And so uh, we end up seeing really for the first time Carl Drogo uh, end up going into uh, hand to hand combat. Yeah. And he like even drops his knives at one point just to like show like, I don't need these. Like I can kill you with your sword in my hand. And he very much does that. Uh, I was really fixated on the ponytail. Uh mm-hmm. That I mean, the, talk about the pointy end. Like that is a that is a pointy ponytail, and it's just like flopping all over the place as he's like ducking and diving, and it's uh it's impressive. Yeah. I, I want hair like that. Yeah, uh, Carl Drogo 
suffers a uh, little bit of a scrape. Uh, does not seem like a big deal. Also, just a scratch. Just a scratch. Just a scratch. Okay. All right. And uh, he will receive some medical attention for that. All right, Josh. Uh, anything else you want to say in the non-spoiler section? No. Let's get into the spoiler section. Sound the horns. Okay. All one right. more. We need one more. One more for spoilers. It's three for spoilers here. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. All right are you out of here? Are you guys gone? If you if you've uh, if you if you gotten your phone out of your pocket fast <laughs> enough? Yeah. Get it. Get it going on. Leave here. We're about to get into full blown spoiler territory. Okay. So. Well, let, let's uh, let's let the spoiler infection spread all through our veins. Josh, yes. so uh, this cut that Khal Drogo ends up suffering. Uh, ridiculous. Da- Daenerys ends up having uh, one of the lamb women end up uh, working on it. Uh, that You know, there is some, you know, the word, the W word is thrown around. Uh, you know, some people say that she is a, uh, in fact, a witch. A that, witch. That Danny is saving. T- tell me, do you believe that had Khal Drogo not received medical attention from Mary Mazdur, would he have been okay? A hundred percent, right? Like he would have like it would have sucked. It would have been bad and like eventually it would have gotten infected. But I can't imagine that cut is going to be the thing that kills Khal Drogo. Uh, it's much more severe in the book, as I remember it. I think like, you know, his nipple gets cut off is, is my memory of it. Like he gets like a really, really bad wound on his chest and it's described fairly vividly. I don't have that right in front of me, uh, but it sounds more vicious in the book than it seems on the show. Like on the show, he literally just like stepped into the sword And like, it looks like it went like, you know, look, would I be crying like a baby if that happened to me? Yeah, but I'm not called Drogo. I don't have that super awesome, ferocious hair. Uh, That guy, like he would have been okay. I feel like he would have been all right. Am I am I being overly harsh here or do you agree? I think that he probably I mean, I feel like that the Dothraki, you know, get stuff like this all the time. The other thing, too, is like if you're going to get it treated, don't get it like treated by this person who you have not vetted at all. Like lesson, I hope, sincerely learned on Daenerys Targaryen's part of like, I should probably at least check their resume before I, you know, really make sure that they're uh, they're you know suitable to work for me. Uh, of course, she will be betrayed later on in Game of Thrones a few times. So this is uh, a sticking point, uh, a sticking pointy end that uh, will follow Danny throughout her time on this show. Do you think that the title references this at all in terms of the pointy end? Sure. Yeah, I think that's one of the many pointy really ends. It wasn't really an end of the... <laughs> it was like, it's sort of like a sickle and it's sort of like the curvy yeah, part. Yeah, the pointy, the pointy curve. Stick them with the curvy part. Yeah, the curvy part. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't have the same ring to it. I think the curvy part. Oh, God, the curvy part doesn't sound great. Right. Uh, yeah. All right. So Mary Mazder, uh less of a healer, more of a hustler, it turns out. It turns out could have been a hero uh, for for Khal Drogo ends up hustling uh, Danny and Drogo. And this will lead to one of the one of the major deaths coming up down the line here at the end of the season, mm-hmm. the death of Khal Drogo. But it was really cool to see him, you know, in combat. And that's something that you don't even get in the book. So this is like the only Khal Drogo fight scene that you ever get. Uh, it's a good one. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Jason Momoa kicks some ass in this scene for sure. Because in the book, he ends up getting that cut off. Uh, I would say off screen, but off page. Right, right, right. Yeah. Danny just like kind of like shows up and sees Drogo and like he's in that condition where he's like, yeah, you know, it could be worse. And like like half of his nipple is gone, at least. Okay. Uh, 
it's not great. Sorry to be so graphic. It's, you know, it's, it's, I didn't write it. I didn't come up with the right. story. I'm just, I'm just reporting the facts. Okay. Josh, we have to go back to the Serial Pharrell scene because it has been widely speculated for some time. I and mean, we've obviously touched on it in this podcast. And I think that we all know where you stand on this, that you do not, you're not a Serial Pharrell truther, but I'm not. Do you think, based on rewatching this scene, is it possible, Serial Pharrell, and we don't need to get into, is he Jacqueline Hagar, could he have survived this encounter with the Lannister men? I mean, could he have? Sure, I guess. I just don't see any sort of narrative utility to it whatsoever. Like, the stuff that you get out of Serial Pharrell is so much more powerful if he's dead after this. Uh, he gets, like, his really great, awesome action scene, so you get that out of your system, so that's done. Um, but you also get, like, it's kind of amazing. This is such a formative day for so many different characters, but really for Arya, who has her, you know, her final truly happy memory before she goes off on all of the uh you don't even want to call them adventures but you know on the on the real on the quest that she goes on to survive stemming from this episode her like last happy moment before all of that is you know it's rooted in swordplay already like she's having one last water dance with Cereal Pharrell and it's very calm and it's very very much what she enjoys and then it takes this turn where Cereal Pharrell has cheated uh, where he has gone left instead of going right uh, or, or vice versa rather and has lied to her and he imparts this amazing lesson of like watching is not seeing you know seeing true seeing that's the heart of swordplay and that's really going to follow Arya so much throughout her story and I think for that lesson to be learned from somebody who is then immediately killed in sort of a similar way where Marin Trant uh, and the rest of the people that he brings to bear upon Arya are like your father wants to see you that's not the true true uh, Sirio sees the, the real truth and is able to, to navigate their way out of that situation I think it's such an instructive formative moment for Arya that loses impact if somehow Sirio is dead so just is alive rather so just narratively i i hate the idea of Sirio pharrell still being alive you don't see it happen on screen but you do hear very specifically from varus telling ned that everybody who worked for you is dead and how else to account for Sirio pharrell like why would they not have that number i think there's too many witnesses to the Sirio pharrell thing and certainly people who survived this encounter like marin trant so there's just i think zero reason for Sirio pharrell to still be alive yeah, in the episode, you know, he gets a, a few good shots in on the Lannister men when he is uh, knocking them down. And then uh, you do see at the end of the scene, they are starting to rise back up to their feet and he is dealing with like a stub of a sword. So it does not look I mean, if, good. If he sticks them with the pointy end of the stub of the sword, you know, like he could do some damage if he gets them in like a fleshy spot. But like. Very few fleshy spots. You know, it's really just like the face. You got to be pretty precise. So yeah. I don't I don't know. It doesn't look great for him. So I will uh, also just give you something. This is from the Game of Thrones wiki that George R. R. Martin did commentary uh, for this episode. And in that commentary that uh, he had to explain that the fight sequence between Serio and the Lannister Guardsmen was changed. That in the book, the Lannister Guardsmen did not have fronted helmets or metal armor. So Serio was actually able to break bones and even kill some of them, striking at the right bones of the eyes for the TV series, the design of the Lannister armor meant things had to be changed. So the guards ended up being less wounded. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there is, um, you know, it, it, it definitely feels not as powerful on the show as when you read that passage in the book. Uh, it really is a testament to what Sirio is able to do, that he is able to not just wound some of these people, but outright kill some of them with his wooden sword uh, is a real, real, you know, monument to just the, the badassery of Sirio Pharrell, the, the first dancer of Bravos, first sort of Bravos. Uh, but I, I think for the show, that makes sense that they have their armor the way that they have it. It just does come across as a little bit weaker than it is is in then it's depicted in the book but it's still you know it's such an awesome scene and it's a great great final note for serio pharrell it's iconic and one of the things that game of thrones does so well i think is like the limited appearance character you know the character that is just like so powerful and so like instantly uh impactful uh, as soon as they arrive on screen and yet they don't make it very far you know they their appearances are few and far between but the, the few appearances that they make leave such an impression uh serio pharrell is really high on the list of those characters like uh yorin of the night's watch is a, is a much less remembered character but even him is just like so great or even the great john uh we mm-hmm. can we could talk about here is somebody who is gonna have such an immediate impact and then for whatever reason is not going to be in basically the rest of the show right then i call him great john for nothing exactly okay now, in the original script for this episode, uh, none of these Ned Stark scenes were here. But I think there was some concern about could the series have legs of its own to be able to stand without having Sean Bean's depiction of Ned Stark. I guess this was a good test balloon to see because you're going to have Ned Stark uh, basically like chained away. And then, of course, all of the future episodes after next week's episode are going to be without uh, at least the older current version of Ned Stark. So we end up seeing Ned Stark here in the black cells here with Varys. And then you see him like for some reason they just wake him up for and you see him for like five seconds uh, later on in the episode. But we I thought that was rude. I thought that was impetuous. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what do you think of Ned's conversation here with Varys? Uh, I like it. I love it in retrospect, too, of like Varys being like, nobody trusts the eunuch. Why does nobody trust the eunuch? Like the show is being very upfront with the fact that Varys ultimately is going to be one of the good ones. Like Varys ultimately is somebody who is going to be on the right side of the line. He is going to serve Daenerys Targaryen. This is where he gets his really great line of I serve the realm, my lord. Someone must. Uh, And you don't necessarily believe it in the moment because there is so much mystery and such an enigmatic nature to and surrounding. Varys um, that I just don't think that you can trust him fully until more events transpire when he is really helping out some of the people that we really love as a viewer uh, like purely love as a viewer are really rooting for not just like bad guys that we love to watch like he's serving Joffrey in this episode as well you really need to see him helping out the good guys in times of crisis to really understand that yeah this guy's probably on the level and the fact that he hitches his proverbial wagon to Team Targaryen uh, ultimately and serves Daenerys directly uh, is really going to there's going to be no walking back at that point like you really trust him at that point but he's giving you the truth in this moment you don't believe it necessarily the first time you're watching it but in retrospect it's cool just how early on Varys really is just laying it out there very plainly exactly what what the key to understanding that character is all about he doesn't have great news for Ned he mentions about how the imp has escaped your wife's clutches And Ned is not thrilled to hear that. Kill me now. 
Yeah, just kill me now. I I like this scene a lot. And I mean, there are, I'm I'm blanking on exactly how it plays out, but like the final Ned chapter in the book does take place in the cells. And I think it's once he's being told like if you confess, then everything will be okay. And he's kind of wrestling with that. But he has some Tower of Joy stuff that he's thinking about here. He's thinking about John a little bit here in this scene. Um but I love that the show depicts this moment where Ned is talking about how uh I'm not going to get killed like we've got Tyrion and Varys is like no Tyrion's gone you're definitely going to get killed and you finally now get this understanding of Ned Stark knowing like my days are numbered here and again it's just great that the show is being so direct with this information knowing what's coming up like knowing that Ned Stark is going to die uh, there's just a lot of dramatic irony and also just a frankness to the way that this information is being delivered to Ned one episode before he actually will get killed off that I think is it's really really great it's really really amazing writing I think yeah but I think that as a viewer going through it the first time I think you're feeling like okay well somebody will free Ned and Rob exactly. is coming. The cavalry is on its way. So I don't think that you are really prepared for what's going to happen, even though they're telling you what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think it, you know, there's a lot of that in this episode, too. Nothing that's going to pay off as immediately and as urgently uh, as what's going to happen to Ned. But there are scenes with um, with Rob and Catelyn talking, right? Like in the war tent when she finally joins the party and she's like laying out the stakes of what happens if we lose. Like Tywin Lannister, do you know what he did to the to the Targaryen children after seizing King's Landing? That's what's going to happen to us. Uh, uh, and Rob's like, oh, well, then that's simple. We we can't lose. And it's like, OK, well, you are absolutely going to lose in that way. Like you are going to lose because Tywin is so ruthless. So it's being really frank in the moment of like, yeah, this is this is what's coming for these characters at the point that this scene is being written and shot and filmed and produced. Um, the third book in the series is, you know, long since published. So the Red Wedding is very much already something that they are building toward. So I love the way that they that they they stitch that together here. Uh, and then that scene is immediately followed by Tyrion and Tywin having uh, their first conversation of the whole show. So I love like the the way that that scene between Rob and Catelyn basically talking about their own future demise is threaded right into a scene with the guy who's going to orchestrate that demise, talking to the person who's going to orchestrate his demise. Uh, so there's just like a lot of circularity with that that I think is is really fascinating in the writing of this episode. You know, what's really interesting about this Lannister plot is that you have Tywin really controlling the ground forces and then you have Cersei in the capital but she seems to be moving independently of Tywin uh, yet they're on the same side. Do you feel like was there communication going on between Cersei and Tywin? In terms of her move against King Robert? Yeah. I think that I think that there's a lot of truth to what Varys says to Ned, unfortunately, where he's like, you know, it was your mercy that got the king killed. Uh, you know, it's the madness of mercy. It wasn't, you know, the wine or the boar that killed Robert. It was you coming down here and doing what you've been doing. And I think that that's probably correct. Uh, it's really, you know, if if Littlefinger and Lysa Aaron, you know, they're the ones who killed John Aaron. And that's the thing that kickstarts all of this into action. And it causes 
Ned to start investigating the Lannisters for the murder of John Aaron, even though they are innocent of that crime, he's going to learn about a bunch of different crimes that he, as Ned Stark, as the honorable, courageous Ned Stark, simply cannot abide. And that is going to cause all of the, the destruction that comes from that. I think that's what's really going to galvanize Cersei, who probably has been contemplating a, a move like this for a while, but I don't know if necessarily directly in league with Tywin. I don't think so. Uh, I think it's more we have to now react to what the reality is and have to like play with the openings that have been created, whether by our design or by not in Tywin's um, mind. I think that's how he's moving. But these opportunities now exist because Ned came to King's Landing, because Ned started investigating everything that the Lannisters are into and guilty, uh, you know, put a guilty verdict all over the Lannisters in terms of the crimes that they've committed. And they are certainly worthy of justice. But that wouldn't have even been, you know, a fart in the wind for Ned Stark to investigate if he hadn't been summoned to King's Landing in the first place with the suspicion of what happened to John Aaron. So I think that's really what's going on is that that really just that was the hand grenade that blew everything up. And so if you are looking for things to credit to Littlefinger, if we are having a little bit less respect for him in light of how things wrap up for him and his inability to see his own demise coming, this is one thing that you can really, um, I think, stick a feather in his cap on. But knowing Tywin Lannister and how he is, it almost seems odd that he would be so in the dark about everything that's going on. We see Tywin Lannister with Kevin Lannister. Of course, we know that Lancel Lannister was very uh, involved in the plot to take out Robert. Is Lancel Lannister sort of getting information back to Kevin Lannister and then Tywin is in the loop? Because it would seem like that the death of Robert would be a major blindside for Tywin. And he doesn't seem to be reacting to that news and like, oh, my God, what happened? Robert's dead. Okay, uh, Joffrey is the king. Okay, here's how we're going to play this. Yeah, well, that's because he's very unemotional. And like, that's a famous character trait for Tywin Lannister, I think, is that he's ice cold, you know, ice cold. He is really, you know, very stern and serious. And I think that he is so strategic and I think he's very um, he's very adaptable. Uh, he is able to react to a sudden development with swift and decisive responses. Uh, you know, he really is able to pull himself together in moments of crisis. That's one of his um, his many uh, powerful traits, one of the things that has given him so much power and has given him such a reputation. So I think there's I think that that's really why he seems so measured and can still be not surprised. Uh, I mean, probably surprised to some degree, but not um, not lingering on the surprise, not really, you know, wallowing in like the shock of the moment. I think that he is uh, he's got the three C's, you know, he's cool, calm and collected when it comes to that. And I think for Lancel, as we will come to find out that Cersei's been stringing Lancel along in some interesting way. So I think that he's probably in her pocket pretty firmly. So I, I don't think that Tywin is in on the assassination of Robert, but I think that he is able to quickly adapt to what the situation is now. And now that Robert is gone, it's all about protecting the Lannisters. I don't know that it was a long game plot for him, though. But would Tywin be so bold if that he was operating under the assumption that Robert was, you know, operating at all of his faculties and he was going to be sort of, you know, remaining in power? I I mean, I know that the crown owes uh, the Lannisters a lot of money. And so that I guess that the Lannisters uh, do have Robert over a barrel on that front. 
But I mean, does Robert want the Lannister army sort of like, uh, you know, taking up and marching and going after the Starks and, you know, uh, and sieging all of these uh, different locations on the map? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I don't think that they want that at all. I don't think Tywin necessarily wants that either. You know, if things just play out normally and Robert Baratheon just passes away from a heart attack or whatever is coming his way and probably not coming too far in the future, give it like 10 years at most, given the the way he was living his life. I think then the next thing that obviously happens is Joffrey Baratheon steps up to the throne and, you know, the the line is continuing and that's, you know, that's his son. You know, that's his grandson. Say lion or lion? The lion and the line, it's continuing. And I think, you know, that's Tywin's grandson and history is moving in the correct direction and he's talked about family and all of that. And I think that he's ready to just, you know, he's going to die and fade into the history books himself someday. And things are moving on. The Lannisters are in power. The Lannisters are in, you know, at the heart of King's Landing. So I don't think that he necessarily feels like this urgent need to, to rid Robert Baratheon from the throne. I don't think that he has that level of of ambition and moreover i think he has such extraordinary patience and is so uh collected in that regard that i think that he's he's fine like it's already it's already a victory and i think it's very in line with cersei especially what we know of her once she is really firmly in power and is able to to rule without even the cover of one of her children as a mask uh to hide behind as a shield to hide behind that cersei's impulsive and cruel and cunning in a very quick way uh so it it's very in character for Cersei to like speed up the death of Robert and like really get this thing moving in a way that I don't think would be quite as characteristic of Tywin. Okay, so we have this letter that Cersei forces Sansa to write. This will come back to be a minor plot point in season seven, um, medium plot point in season seven. Yeah, it, it, it was in season seven. Yeah, it was in season seven. So I've mentioned a couple times. So I have watched a lot of these episodes uh, with my lovely wife. And How did Nicole like this one? She 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 enjoyed it all. Uh, but she was the one to point out. Okay, how does this note? Make it to Winterfell. Now, yeah. Rob is on the road. They are not at Winterfell. They have sort of left the comforts of the north. I believe that they are, what, approaching the neck, right? I mean, do they make um, it all the no, way I to think, the twins? No, I th- I'm pretty sure Sansa's note is what galvanizes Rob to march south. So he's in Winterfell when he receives the letter. Uh, when he, you know, at, at that point, he's called the banners and the Great John is there. And there's the whole thing where Grey Wind is going to bite off Great John's fingers. And that same night it is is how it's depicted, uh, or at least right after. No, they're that in the tents t- at the point that they get the letter. No, at that at that point, I think that that is in Winterfell because Rob is then going to go to Bran and say, "I'm riding south." Like, no, that's that already that part already somehow. happened in the episode. By the time they get this, so they get there's two different oh, ravens that they get. There's one that's where they get the news about what happened to Ned. But then once Catelyn ends up back in the mix, then they end up getting the raven that was sent with the Sansa note. At that point in the episode, and they appear Is that to already not just a letter that he already has that he's showing Catelyn at that point. I'm pretty sure that that's how it's playing. Hmm. 
Okay, but even if they, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that that's how it's playing, Rob. And I think that the the Sansa letter uh, is sent to Winterfell, and then I guess like the the question would then be like he's at least brought the letter down with him to war, uh, and so how is it getting back from now that point and like the reach back to Winterfell? Unless like Rob just like kind of casually is like, all right, file this away in the into in the Winterfell archives. Yeah. Send this send this back up north. Yeah, I think so I think you're you I think you're right coming. about yeah. So that in the episode that there's the scene with Sansa and the small council. And then Rob is getting the Raven. So that so that's right. the letter he's getting at Winterfell. But he has it on the road when right. he is reunited with Catelyn. So how does that note end up getting back into the Winterfell archives? Right. Well, maybe the note was Xeroxed in Winterfell and the Xerox machine that they have in the crypts. And then he brought the Xeroxed copy with him on the road and kept the original back in Winterfell. There's a Xerox machine, right? I guess probably not. If Scotch tape hasn't been invented, mm-hmm. I doubt the, the photocopier exists. I think it could be as simple as Rob, just like he shows it to Catelyn and then ships it back to Winterfell. Like this goes to the archives. Hmm. Okay. I mean, we, you could get hung up on it for a long time. There's so many things <laughs> like this that exist in Game of Thrones that you could really pull on those threads for a while. Uh, you'll never get like any majorly satisfying uh, resolution to something like that. I think you could, in your mind, just explain it away as simply as some, you know, squire wrote it back to Winterfell because it should be, it's a historical document and it should be preserved. Okay. All right. So we also have everything going on at the wall where we have our real first appearance of uh, this white here at the wall. Uh, Does everything play okay for you in terms of what we know about the whites? Yeah, I think there's some there's some uh, a couple of things that are interesting to revisit. One is John is going to ultimately destroy this guy uh, by throwing a lamp at him, you know, by throwing by throwing fire at him. Uh, and he's going to burn his hand in the process. And a lot of people who were like anti R plus L equals J, people who did not like the Jon Snow is secretly a Targaryen theory would often point at that as well. If Danny is in impervious to fire and john is also a targaryen why isn't he impervious to fire um there i don't i don't really have like a great answer for that other than like it's not like every targaryen we've ever met in game of thrones has been impervious to fire certainly uh viserys gets a vat of molten metal just dumped on his head and there's you know it, it doesn't just like become a helmet that he's able to wear around he dies it kills him uh so you know danny seems unique in that regard but i wondered if you had any thoughts on that you know i hadn't really thought about that but i don't think that john has uh, too many ill effects from that i mean does he uh, is he like uh like icing his hand in the next episode i don't think like he's gonna be like you know freaking out about it for the long term i wonder I, my memory of the next episode isn't that sp- uh, specific yet I mean, it will be in about a week if you went up to daenerys targaryen with a branding iron like i don't think that she'd be like that doesn't hurt a branding star yeah indeed right uh yeah i i don't know i i have no idea how that would play i mean she steps into a fire uh you know a, a couple of times in this series and walks away completely unscathed so it's not possible and it's like she touches the the hot thing earlier in the season she doesn't she touch the the eggs like she's totally fine mm-hmm. uh so john does like he definitely yelps he definitely screams when he grabs that torch could have been psychosomatic uh, it could have been like yeah like, like, oh that's terrifying that's scary ah! that should hurt yeah that should hurt like actually it didn't uh, hurt that bad did you like othor uh <laughs> yes this is like the st- stone cold terminator this guy othor are you more of an othor or j for flowers guy 
Uh, I'm a, a hardcore Oether. Uh, yeah, you're an Oether, Oether fan. Um, but in, in terms you, of this particular white, from what we yeah. understand about the like how the whites are reanimated, doesn't it mean that there is you know a white walker who then raises them? Right. Here is a guy who is a corpse. That, that to our knowledge, there is not a white walker that is nearby to reanimate this corpse. So how does this work? I wonder. Also, the guy's like thinking, hiding in a closet. I know. I was thinking about that, too. It's like, you know, when we went back and revisited like the first season of The Walking Dead and like the way that zombies played in that first season of Walking Dead, it's so different from how walkers work in the later seasons of that show. And I was reminded of that watching this white just like be like really calculated in hiding in the corner like Rickon, you know, like it was like straight out of the Rick and Stark playbook. Uh, so I thought that that was funny. But I thought about it a little bit more. And one of the bits of information that we get about the White Walker culture and how they work uh, in season seven was when they go on that mission, when the, you know, the East Watch seven go north of the wall and they go in search of a white to bring back so they can prove their point to all of the skeptics uh, is they kill a White Walker and then all of the whites in the nearby area, basically, or many of them, they just drop. Um, And I wonder, you know, like we know now that like, if you've been raised by a white walker, uh, by like a particular white walker and that white walker dies, then those particular whites probably presumably also get killed. And that seems like that seems like a pathway for how ultimately this all could end is like killing the Night's King and everybody else gets to drop Hack the network. Um, Exactly. Basically. So it made me wonder then, like if they are associated in that way, could it basically be like a white walker is puppeteering a white? Like, does it have like it's, you know, it's ingenuity from a distance? Is it is it psychic psychically linked? I wonder, uh, like, I wonder, is it are these things as mindless as we as we believe or at least are they as incapable of control, like almost warging to a degree, uh, I guess, is what I'm what I'm suggesting as a possibility here. We talked about that in our season seven podcasts is the Night King potential secretly a green seer uh, do the white walkers who we know are created by the children of the forest who we know do have the power of the sight is there any sort of possibility that white walkers can also warg or have some sort of warg-ish thing about them in their connection to the whites and that's why they can they can act with a little bit more apparent agency yeah I don't know if we'll ever get the real answer probably to that probably not no. probably not yeah yeah deep deep thoughts on a Saturday morning about uh, white walker logistics uh, that's basically what was happening over here. Josh, we also see that Jon Snow uh, really uh, act the fool to some degree and uh, makes a assassination attempt on Alistair Thorne and then gets sent to his room after Alistair Thorne uh, starts to uh, really taunt Jon Snow about the treasonous Ned Stark in this episode. But I thought that this was uh, a little bit interesting that uh, in doing some research where Alistair Thorne, you know, he always hates Jon Snow, but I was under the impression that it was just more of like a class thing where he hated Jon Snow because Jon Snow was a one percenter, that he was from this sort of uh, really prestigious house. And what do you think? You're better than everybody because you come from this great house. 
but that in uh, upon further investigation, I guess the books explain that Alistair Thorne ends up being sent to the wall because he was such a Targaryen loyalist. And so Robert did not like Alistair Thorne because of his allegiance to the Targaryens. And so that for Alistair Thorne, because that he that uh, Jon Snow and his connection to Ned Stark, that's why he's really like uh, rubbing Jon's in the face of like, oh, the Starks, they're so good. They think they're so great. I, I knew all along that they were this treasonous house. And he was, seemed like uh, very much to be I told you so about this. That's really great dramatic irony, knowing that Jon Snow is a Targaryen, <laughs> yes. and Alistair Thorne like, ah! hates Jon Snow so much. And like, if why they didn't just we know along, about this? We could have been best friends. I love the Targaryens. Uh, yeah, do you think that Alistair Thorne fanboyed really hard on Maester Aemon when he first got to the wall? I was like, oh, Maester Aemon! Oh my god, your ex brother! I love Duncan Egg. Yes, I love the Targaryens. It's like, oh, they always talk to me about egg. Oh, I hate this. I came to the wall so my so I wouldn't have to sign any more autographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alistair Thorne as like a massive Targaryen fanboy is a great uh treat on the treatment of the character. That's that's really funny. Targaryen Stan. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Targaryen Stannis. <laughs> yeah, I so I like that. That's really great. I also once again, this is an episode that's like really upfront with a bunch of people's ultimate fates. Uh ultimately the way that people are going to die and Jon Snow is going to try and kill Alistair Thorne and Alistair Thorne says, "Blood will always tell. You'll hang for this bastard," which I think is so funny knowing that Jon Snow is actually going to hang Alistair Thorne someday. Mm-hmm. That it's Thorne who's going to hang and it's going to be at John's hands. So once again, you know, the, the Rob and Catelyn talking about Tywin thing, Tywin and Tyrion talking shortly thereafter as Tywin is talking to the person who's going to end his life. And you get this scene between Alistair and John here, which is going to have this great, um, you know, retroactive meaning makes you wonder, like if you're, if you're looking around at some of these other places in this episode, like where else are people talking about the thing that's going to cause them their own destruction? Uh, what's going to cause them to meet their own pointy end? Call Drogo with Miri Mastur is one example that that wheel, those wheels are being set into motion here. Even in retrospect, think about Littlefinger um, being part of the coalition that forces Sansa to create this letter that he is eventually going to use in a really dumb way that's going to get him killed. So it makes you wonder about the people who aren't dead yet on the show. Is there anything that's going to be, you know, interesting to look back on after season eight from this episode that is written by George R.R. R. Martin? I wonder, like, what is he seeding here that perhaps we aren't seeing quite yet bear out? Uh, sounds kind of conspiratorial, but conspiracies are all the rage on Game of Thrones at this moment in the story. So who knows? How many episodes does George R. R. Martin write of the series? Does he do like one a season? I I don't remember where it stops. I don't know if he is writing anything in season four. I'm going to I'm going to really quickly look that up. Um, he definitely writes the through three seasons. Uh, you know, he goes that far. Uh, and then at a certain point, he yeah, he makes it to season four. His final episode is the Purple Wedding is Joffrey's death, mm-hmm. uh, the lion and the rose. And then no more because he's too devoted to or quote unquote devoted to working on the next book in the series, which has has yet to to see the light of day as of this uh as of this recording at the end of october 2017 mm-hmm. yeah so uh the, what are the other episodes that he ends up writing <laughs> 
He's written the pointy end. He is the the writer of one of uh, arguably the best episodes of the series, Blackwater, yeah. in season two. Uh, he also writes The Bear and the Maiden Fair in season three, uh, which is another great episode featuring uh, Brienne stepping into the bear pit. Uh, I immediately regret this decision. And then season four is The Lion and the Rose is his final episode. So four episodes of Game of Thrones. I really do think the quality of Game of Thrones when George R. R. Martin is actively involved in the writing staff of this show. Uh, you could really look but like I give season two some knocks and I'm going to be interested to see if that holds up when we go back and rewatch season two in a little bit. But like when I rank the season, season two is typically really, really low for me. Um, but the the first season, the third season, and the fourth season are decisively just like the best seasons. You know, season six is really good, too, I think. But those seasons, there's just something like so cohesive about the way the characters are depicted. And I wonder how much of that really is due to the fact that Uncle George's, uh, you know, his influence is directly felt in the writing here on these four seasons of Game of Thrones. And then he's really going to walk away to refocus on the books, uh, even though that hasn't fully bared out just yet. Uh, it's interesting. The period of George being directly involved in Game of Thrones versus the period where he has stepped away from the show. And then finally, just to touch on where Rob Stark is headed, uh, literally and figuratively. So we end up seeing that scene where they end up capturing the Lannister scout who is there counting the number of Lannister men that are there. Uh, Rob decides that it is in the best interest of the Northmen to give that man mercy and go back and let him tell that the Lannister forces uh, of what Rob wants to end up he- have them here that he is headed south. Uh, is this decision sort of like a little bit of a microcosm of the Rob Stark situation? Well, I think it looks that way. But if I if I remember it right, they're not and going we will south, find- right? Yeah, yeah. Like he's basically he's giving this guy false information. Which is, and even the way it's handled, where yeah. that Rob is up to something, but he he does not seem to like have his men in right. the loop on it. Where ultimately, if you were going to lead that North Army, I, I mean, is it a better move just to sort of like behead that guy in front of everybody? Yeah, I I think that that's a it's a good call about the way that the well, it's 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 really reflective of the way the Starks operate, that they're very hard headed and do things a certain way and are not um, they're they're like traditionally they're, they're very rigid in a lot of their thinking and they lack the flexibility that the that the Lannisters have. And that's something that Catelyn points out about how like they're ruthless and they're they're creative in their ruthlessness. Uh, you know, that's the great line that the Queen of Thorns has about Cersei Lannisters. I underestimated her, her creativity in being so cruel and her capacity to be so cruel. And that's something that the Starks lack. But I think also they are, um, they're not great at listening to counsel. They're not great at keeping counsel with the right people. And I think Rob making this call, um, which is not an impulsive call, it's actually a really smart thing he's doing by sending this scout to report back information that's ultimately not going to be um, completely accurate uh, and is going to give them the opportunity to capture Jamie Lannister. Uh, the fact that he's not filling in the great John, that he's not filling in like the top generals on the Stark side of things is probably a bad look and gives you some insight into how this is the kind of guy that could fall for the Red Wedding. Yeah, they really do a lot of the 
trust me, I got this. Nobody questioned right. my authority. And they don't do a great job of like keeping all of their generals sort of in the loop on what's actually going on and really making everybody feel like they're part of the process. What a disappointment, by the way, that the great John really is uh, is completely abandoned after this first season. Right. Like it's just it's it's such a bummer. I guess it was a scheduling clash between Clive Mansell, the actor who plays great John uh, and the show. And he was not able to be in season two and then was just never asked back. I wonder if there's more there there. But who knows? Uh, Because this is a character who like you you hear a lot about in the books and he's captured at the Red Wedding in the books. And uh, there's a lot of theorizing about how he's going to burst back into the scene later on in the novel so he's still an active force in the song of ice and fire with fewer fingers for sure for sure but hopefully uh only more ferocity uh when he comes back so it's a shame uh he's a great character but there's lots of great characters in game of thrones so it's okay another uh, group of characters that we miss uh after after this season is like i don't think that we really do anything with the the mountain clan uh the mountain clans past uh, maybe like an episode or two of season two i think tywin just like gets those people to leave uh but they're great here shaga mm-hmm. come on yeah the stone crows uh what a, what an amazing spinoff it would be at the alternate universe where Tyrion takes them up on their offer to become their clown Bronn dies and it's just like Tyrion hanging out with the stone crows i feel like that would be i would watch that show all right josh uh, great job talking this through a lot coming up next week in baylor of course uh, do we have a hashtag for this episode of the podcast we have a lot of different things uh, that we talked about in this episode uh, we have uh barristan the old uh <laughs> dothraki yoko ono targaryen stannis i like targaryen stannis i think that's giant's fun. blood yeah Giant. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to see what's in that hashtag. <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Very okay, nervous. Targaryen Stannis is the yes. the way we'll go with that. And uh, anything else, of course, besides you know, obviously Ned Stark is going to die in the next episode. Anything else you want to tease about Baylor? About Missy and Baylor. Um, <laughs> love you, Baylor. What a, love you, Baylor. Uh, no, great episode. I, I uh, traditionally walked. Uh, I, I think the thinking is that this is the best episode of season one is Baylor. You know, certainly we'll get to talk about the fact that uh, penultimate episodes of a given Game of Thrones season are often looked at as the most exciting episode of a, of a given season. I'll be interested to see if that plays out. It's been a long time since I've watched this episode in sequence. Will it be better in my mind? Like, will I enjoy it more than the point? end it it has to be transcendent because i loved this episode so much but it's certainly possible the early going of game of thrones is just so good um so yeah i'm excited to revisit the death of ned stark and if there's any theorizing to do there if there's anything that's happening there there is one pet theory that i have like partly clung on to uh about ned's death uh that i will i will enjoy revisiting and and talking through with you so uh good podcast coming up next week as well i am sure in addition here on post show recaps we got a lot of other stuff going on, of course, ongoing coverage of The Walking Dead uh, recaps after each episode. And then Josh and I doing the feedback show there. Of course, uh, Josh and Antonio Mazzaro are also covering Mr. Robot season three as well uh, in conjunction with The Hollywood Reporter. So lots of stuff going on on postshowrecaps.com right now. Star it's Trek Discovery times. Oh, my God. Michael Burnham. Michael Burnham. Yeah. So it's all happening. 
I love it. I love it. Great time to be alive and to be a television podcast fan. Follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sisternino. Looking forward to getting into it next week in terms of Baylor. You can subscribe to our Game of Thrones podcast feed. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T. iTunes. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs>